So you cannot remove the pain experience from any one of those components. You can't remove it. You can't remove the brain and say it's in there. You can't remove the body and say it's in there. And you also can't remove social, environmental contexts in which people experience pain. You need to address that you know, in its entirety to help people develop kind of that plan that can, they can be confident in to move forward. Welcome to the Barbend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your guest host, Jake Boley, and this podcast is presented by Barbend.com. Ian Kaplan is the current Chief Officer of Operations at Hybrid Performance Method. With a background in training and research, when it comes to synthesizing research and understanding how to apply advanced topics into the context of our day-to-day lives, Ian is one of the best personalities I've ever spoke to in doing so. In today's episode, I talk to Ian about a variety of topics, including what it means to be evidence-based, how to interpret the latest research on pain, and much more. Seriously, if you love nitty-gritty details of research and training, then I think you're going to love this episode. As always, we're incredibly thankful that you listened to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbin podcast in your app of choice. Every month, we give away a box full of Barbin swag to one of our listeners who leaves a rating and review. So we are here at Hybrid Performance Method in Miami, Florida. I'm joined here with Ian Kaplan, who has an incredibly deep knowledge of fitness training research, and I can't wait to pick your brain. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Um, To kick off this conversation and to kind of get right into it, I would love to hear a little bit more about your background and how you came across Hybrid and how you got intertwined into the whole system here. Okay, yeah, that's a a good story because you know a lot of people probably don't know who I am unless they've seen me in the hybrid stuff. Uh, so I've been in fitness for a while. I've been coaching people uh, either one on one or working at different gyms. I uh, enrolled in chiropractic school a few years ago and got super into kind of understanding both pain and rehab and training that entire continuum and getting more involved in kind of really figuring out what I know, what I don't know, and how to learn new things. Because also, you know, because there's always limitations to learning new things. You know, you get people with different opinions, people who continue to believe things that you think might be wrong or don't kind of confirm your own experience. So, you, so at least my experience in chiropractic school was learning to, you know, appraise the research evidence a little better and really gathering as much knowledge from that as I could and comparing it against what I was learning in school and also what I was practicing with clients in a, in a training in, environment. So that led me to kind of, again, develop, trying to develop networks with people who I thought were like-minded and also interested in learning more about this thing that we do every day in the gym. And Steph was a good example of that, someone who's also local and someone who was putting out good content that I resonated with. So in my time at school, between all the other things I was working on, I would kind of start some communication back and forth. And that, you know, since we kind of were on the same page with a lot of things and really kind of were in good alignment, um, that conversation kind of evolved over time. And also since I'm here, I kind of came to some events and we'd see each other like Wadapalooza and stuff. And eventually that turned into, hey, we're looking for writers for a blog. You know, would you be interested? Of course, I have all the time in the world. And again, we continue to have this conversation and more and more things kind of snowballed from there. And now I'm here, um, COO. You know, I run the blog. I do a bunch of other stuff. Uh, I help with a bunch of the other content and a lot of the education that we're developing and are and kind of a working into more of a um, organizational role, helping kind of grow the business in general. That's awesome, man. That's really mm-hmm. cool that you've kind of grown to wear multiple different hats. What mm-hmm. has been kind of this toughest skill to learn so far in terms of just like taking on multiple roles in the company? What's been the kind of a struggle for you to pick mm-hmm. up on? Yeah, so what's interesting is, so we had 
a conversation about what a COO position would look like because that's actually the most poorly defined executive position typically. Sometimes you get the the kind of the feedback is like, well, I, I didn't know, I don't know what a COO is or I didn't know that existed. Um, people, I mean, some people don't know anything but a CEO, but there's generally a C-suite of several core executives. Uh, but for this business, a COO made sense because it involves kind of a deep technical knowledge of what the business offers to help optimize that, as well as a knowledge of uh, of organizational management to help things run smoother and to help kind of speed up the process of developing quality work because this is a highly creative business with multiple product and service offerings and kind of it's in a fast evolving market with new things developing and, and kind of emerging trends. You need to be on top of those. You need to coordinate efforts and also, it's a smaller company in terms of manpower, so we need to, you know, divert resources appropriately as as things come up. So for me, the last couple months have been a lot of going back to my my undergraduate is actually in hospitality management, so going back into which is what I finished at FAU prior to going to chiropractic school because I was always interested in the business side of things. Um, going back into organizational management textbooks, into HR textbooks, into the new things people are writing about in terms of management strategy, in terms of executive coaching, in terms of, you know, just how to, how to get the, how to work with people so we can all, you know, do our best work together and how to build systems that scale beyond the individuals in the system. So it's, so everything runs smoothly, whether, whether or not you're kind of propping it up or not. So putting those things in place to allow us to scale to the next level, which we have all, you know, the key ingredients to do is just a question of, you know, lining up the the troops and the resources to to deploy those things. Awesome, man! That's really cool. I love that. I love that background. How it's kind mm. of like you manifested, I guess, a mm. lot of the stuff you do based off of your hard work and mm. just be willing to take on more. That's really cool. Yeah. Speaking of being on top of emerging trends, I mm. want to pick your brain on the background you have, which is in chiropractic school, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. like focusing on the spine, focusing on how we perceive pain, especially in the gym setting. Mm-hmm. What do you think over the last three to four decades has been something that needs to go away in terms of just like a trend that needs to die, I guess you could say, that we've mm-hmm. learned to maybe like overemphasize to the point to where now it's almost like needs an auto, like an overcorrection. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it probably depends on what circle you still run in, but probably this narrative that exercise is somehow unsafe for the spine. Um, I think with the growth of powerlifting, that's you know that's that's fading. But there's still people still get visceral reactions when they see a rounded back deadlift. You know, one rounded back deadlift. You know, God forbid, you know, someone deviated from neutral. I mean, the idea of neutral is kind of funny because it's because we know it's a huge range, and especially at the at the base of the spine, at the sacrum, and you know the lower lumbar segments, even when it looks neutral, it's, there's a ton of flexion. So it's like, what is neutral anyway? Um, it's like, yeah, there might be more or less efficient positions to generate a lot of stiffness and tension in the deadlift, but those vary from person to person. And so the idea that a certain way to do a lift is inherently dangerous because of the way you did it, other kind of adjusting for other factors like preparation and training age and tr- and current training volume and all the other things that you don't see that might actually be contributing to risk or to lack of progression that kind of you know concept needs to die and that's reflective of a, of a whole other problem with the way we kind of think about training in general is that the one thing that we think follows from one thing else so like so you say oh that person has weird technique they also seem to have pain therefore this because of that right instead of imagining all the other possible things it could be and being okay with saying, hey, I don't really know, but I think I'm more confident in one explanation than the other, but nothing is settled in in my mind. That's hard for people to do, especially when they only know a little bit, right? Because because the barrier to entry is super low in in fitness as a professional. And so it's it's hard at the lower level and at the higher level, you want to be perceived as an expert, so you want to be even more certain. So there's just a you know, a ladder of false certainty yeah. in the entire industry. And that's, that's not unique to fitness, but it's in, in kind of a complex human behavior like exercise, it's, it's particularly not useful. Yeah. So I guess my question for you is, 
How much do you think social media plays into that? And I guess if you had to come up with like a perfect, or let's not say the word perfect, but an ideal plan to kind of overcorrect this and kind mm. of get us away from that kind of ideology and how we've overdeveloped some of those thought processes, mm. how would you go about that in like a perfect world? Like, not perfect, but yeah. you know, in an ideal world. I mean, that, that's an interesting problem because a lot of people do get their information from social media. And also a lot of people do get their beliefs from their provider who also got their beliefs from social media. You know, so there's a socially learned culture around what is acceptable behavior and what are acceptable norms of, of kind of how we approach you know, those things. And they're, they're more socially conditioned than, than kind of hard earned knowledge. So the only way, I think the first thing to address that would just to be to bring awareness to the consumer because there's only so much you can do from the other end of it in regulating what goes out on social media because that involves regulating big tech companies, which is an entirely different conversation, right? Which they are more or less unwilling to do, especially in issues as minor as telling people that their back is hurt for this reason, that they're concerned with, with terrorism and, you know, yeah. and violence and, you know, they're, they're concerned with bigger things. So you, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't rank rounded back deadlifts at the same level of importance as yeah. violence and terrorism yeah, I don't on think, social media. Yeah. You know, I don't think, um, <laughs> Mark Zucker or Susan would just get YouTube or watching YouTube videos or posts and saying, Nope, that's a nocebo. <laughs> until, <laughs> until, until they do something with their yeah. back deadlifting, yeah. they're not going to be interested. Yeah. In. Yeah. Um, I like that. I like that approach a lot, man. It's my, I guess, I guess my question is now it's like, what do you think will eventually shift that rhetoric over time? Cause you were seeing some shift now and there's mm -hmm. a lot more, I think experts getting the platforms that they need to actually get the correct messaging across of how yeah. to think about this stuff. Yeah. But in the like next couple of years, how do you see that progressing? Do you see that continuing to be a big shift or how do you, how would you combat that if you had like all the well, say in the world to do so? Well, I think, because everyone has a microphone, I literally have a microphone in my hand right now, uh, there is a, a market opportunity to be the person who is uncertain, right? So people can go through the, the, the progression and the growth that comes with, I know almost nothing. There's this person who seems really sure they must know something. They actually only know very you know, little. They only know a little bit more than you about the topic. And then you eventually experience something that disconfirms that belief and now you go and learn more and so people work through this progression of of eventually appreciating the fact that there is a little bit of nuance and complexity to these things and it's hard for people to make blanket statements about them and nor is it really necessary and there's no real substitute for the individual work that you have to do to figure out what works for you and that just takes time and people you know don't want to take that time but eventually they will have accidentally taken that time and because that will be clear to them in hindsight. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just about positioning in the marketplace because you can't take out voices. You can only add more voices. So it's about giving people access to the voices that may be less attractive to, to people who are looking for, for certainty and for the clearest answers about what they need to do. But, I think there is clarity in confidence, but not certainty. When you say, hey, there are multiple contributors, like these contributors can be part of your picture, but let's do the work together to figure out what the best option is for you. That can be done at scale now because of new media opportunities. So you don't need to work, one, a lot of people don't need to work one-on-one -on -one with someone and go through months of, of you know, that kind of relationship or coaching or therapy or whatever. Uh, people can do that work on their own if they're motivated enough. But it's a question of getting the buy-in on the front end. Yeah, I get that. Mm. So something you said earlier kind of piqued my interest, and mm. that's you referenced briefly how you kind of went through school and then you picked and chose like which views to challenge, which to kind of like look more into and so mm -hmm. forth, and which that need to be rejected. Mm -hmm. So as someone who's super invested into research and trying to stay up with the trends, yeah. how do you go about as a professional choosing who to listen to, who to give merit to? Do you consider everything and then look at like the rational standpoints? Like how have you built up that, I guess, approach to weeding through all of the noise to figure out 
where you see best practices going and where you're interpreting some of that data we just talked about being on a big scale in social yeah. media and then integrating that into a new way to some, think about something or maybe looking at an old way that needs to go away mm-hmm. and then realizing like, oh, that was said because of this, but now mm-hmm. we're seeing more of this. So I guess my question for you as a professional in mm-hmm. the fitness industry or just in any industry yeah. really, how did you learn to develop that muscle and skill to pick and choose which voices to kind of challenge and base your own ideologies on? Yeah. So I think you need to preface that with the fact that no one can really escape their own bias. So you need to surround yourself with people who challenge your views, but who challenge them authentically and with the goal of resolving that disagreement, right? And coming to a common understanding, a common mutual understanding. And that's tough. I mean, that's part of why I'm here because these people do it. Um, and we get access to people who will do that. And, but we need to agree on a common set of like, fundamental axioms or an epistemology of like, how do we actually derive knowledge? Because like, I can't say, like, oh, my experience is my truth, so therefore you can't change my truth. It's like, well, we have this thing called the scientific method where we assume that everything is you know, happens because of chance and we have to prove with a greater, you know, that something will follow another thing or one or two things are related with a greater than chance probability. And that says something about that relationship that we can then investigate further, right? And that can be, and that is statistically derived. And we know the likelihood that it might be wrong based on that specific experiment. And there's limited generalizability. There's a certain amount of validity to that statement that's confined to that logic. So there's inherent logic to the way we, we appraise knowledge. And having that basic science literacy, I think, is really important. And if someone doesn't have that, you can appreciate their experience and what they've learned, but you can't ask counterfactual questions. You can't ask what if had what if had what if had it had been different, right? What if he did this or what if he did that? Because he didn't do this or that, right? Experiment is a counterfactual question. You set two things, and you are like, and so in a control group. It's basically saying, if I had not done my intervention, this is what would have happened. So I now know the difference between my, my intervention and my control. I now have a better idea of the effect of what I did in the world. If we don't do that, we reliably fool ourselves about our influence on the world. So that, I think, is fundamentally important. And if, and if it's clear that people are sourcing their knowledge in that way and always questioning their knowledge because there's always misleading, because that's a... A, you know, a philosophically sound argument, but there's always practical constraints to those statements, and that's why we're constantly refining them. So when people are always kind of looking to be less wrong and developing basically the next experiment in their head or asking the next counterfactual question, because there's a never-ending series of questions, those are the people that you want to be around because you can actually begin the conversation with them. Right, there's a whole host of people that you can't because they actually don't ask those questions. They actually don't ask any questions. Yeah, you it's know? like it's like when you read comment threads <laughs> yeah. on certain posts, and yeah. you're just like, "All right, you're not even worth engaging yeah. on." But then yeah. you actually get some great questions. You're like, yeah. "All right, let's actually talk this through and engage." So, yeah. something you said in there too piqued my interest. Um, we we have a trouble challenging our own biases, I think, especially mm-hmm. with fitness, like you said. Mm-hmm. So, I guess my question for you is: this, if somebody wants to start doing a little bit more of what you just spoke about and truly looking at everything around them and challenging what they've previously thought and improving their knowledge and mm-hmm. basis and ideologies. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tips for people who want to find folks that, in their community that will challenge ideologies? Like, how did you find Steph, for example, and the crew at Hybrid? And mm-hmm. like, why did they resonate with you? How did you find them? What are some methods that you would recommend for other trainers, coaches, or other just industries in any professional sense to yeah. build up that community? That's a good question. Um, the, I think the problem is... It's hard because I don't know if without my uh, advanced education, I would have been able to do it to the same level. It's like one thing just to ask a question. It's another thing to honestly investigate the answer. And I don't want to say just go to school, but if you can't, if you don't go through that exercise of, of one being just inundated with information and trying to sort out what makes sense and what doesn't, and also learning the basic tools of how to appraise that information. Yeah. Like, you know, that's a whole tangent, but it's like, you know, there was that Joe Rogan Game Changers interview and, and they're both talking about research and Chris Kresser's a little, I, you know, I like some of his stuff, but they literally don't know what the graph is they're looking at and they both misstate 
what a confidence interval in a forest plot is. So it's like, how can you appraise that information if you don't know what you're looking at? You're just looking at the, the summary of the study. So when you can have a conversation based on you know, a, a common basic skill set of, of just, there's a little fly, but <laughs> of understanding you know, probability and the basic math re required, then you can begin to essentially find people who are also doing those things. So for my conversation with hybrid was, I mean, I saw, con obviously you just get exposed to content because you use a huge social media account, but then you get on the back end, you get this content about, you know, well, this study said this, but this, there was these limitations. So they, they weren't, there was no, you know, whatever, 10 fat melting exercises or three stretches for your IT band or, cause it's like, why, how, how do you know? Like, does that make sense? You know, why wouldn't I do something else? Like you, you don't, those things are red flags to me and I never saw any of those. And I saw things that, that most people aren't uncomfortable posting, right? It's like, well, we don't know, you know, how important a slight knee valgus is, you know, we don't, uh, what's another good example is like, you know, tempo doesn't seem to be that relevant for hypertrophy, you know, and it used to be all about time under tension and tempo and, you know, and I used to think that too. And when the, but then when you see evidence, it was like, yeah, when you control for tempo, it doesn't make a difference, you know, and that seems pretty convincing. Um, and I do think that's a, a muscle you exercise over time because you learn, especially the field of research you're looking at is like, well, what are the common, you know, limitations is like, how does that affect outcomes is like, what is a good you know, site design look, you know, look like versus the bad ones. Like what are the levels of evidence again, which you'll learn in schools, like how, you know, like, you know, what are, what is the history of the, of the literature in this topic? How is this new thing you're looking at different? What value does it add to the current body of literature? And what is kind of the consensus among, among experts and what are they looking to improve in their own fields body of, of literature. It's like, what questions are the experts asking? Not, not what the experts believe is like, but what are they commonly investigating? Yeah. Right. I love that. Yeah. You know, so I think when you dive deep enough into a field, like, you know, sports science and exercise physiology in the U S is kind of a small field. So you can get a good sense of the, you know, the position of it, especially with people who are just, who are just looking at hypertrophy and strength. That's even a smaller field, like endurance exercise physiology is its own thing and has, and kind of, transfers over to medical um, cardiovascular health pretty quickly. So there's a lot of literature on, on, on disease populations and cardiovascular health, which is kind of out, you know, somewhat very valuable, but not totally in the scope. But people looking at healthy young college students and exercise phys programs trying to get bigger and stronger, that's not a huge body of evidence. You can like l read all of the meta-analyses and all of the very large randomized controlled trials and get something out of that. And it does help you understand real world practice. It's not a one-to-one -one transfer, but it will inform your decision-making that you learn on a day-to-day -day basis, kind of just work, working with people because there is no substitute, again, just to going out and working with people. And there are practical things you learn that aren't validated by, you know, double blind randomized, you know, placebo controlled trials. Also, those don't really exist in exercise because you can't, there's no placebo exercise intervention. But, so, and I think people also struggle with that too. It's like, well, how do I learn research in a way that helps me in my, in my training business or in my coaching or my own training? Or, I mean, if you're, if, you know, if you're just an, an enthusiast, it's probably not even a conversation for you. It's find someone you trust to learn from or find several people you, you trust to learn from. So, so yeah, but if you really want to be a professional, I think you really have to in, in, invest more time than you think in gathering a basic science knowledge because this is a science. The application is creative and you can say it's a science and an art, but that doesn't mean it's an excuse to not know the science. hundred percent. Right. <laughs> I, I actually really love that point and mm. you kind of segued perfectly mm. into what my next question for yeah. you. And it's, I think there are different camps within coaching, obviously, mm. right? Yeah. You have the folks who only go by the research. Yeah. You have the folks who don't even look at the research. They're yeah. like, this is my way of doing it, and that's what works. Yeah. So how do you walk that line and combine the two? I know you've kind of alluded to it, yeah. but I want to talk specifically with coaching athletes. Yeah. How do you personally, Ian, yeah. walk the line of using scientific trends and what's 
what we know and what we have a better idea of at this point in time mm. versus your direct interactions with athletes, your own training. Like, how do you combine those two and how do you navigate them? Do you have any tips mm. for other coaches and trainers trying to flex that muscle? Yeah. So I think, again, when you only go by experience, you run the very real risk of fooling yourself, which is almost unavoidable. And then the challenging part is people just tend to get better with training. So pretty much everything works. So you can validate your own effect. It's the same thing in, in, you know, in chiropractic care or physical therapy or for back pain. It's like most people get better. So that doesn't validate your treatment approach if someone gets better. Right, the only way you can test it is with experiment. And again, these things are, are very complex and hard to test experimentally, which makes the research challenging. But the research sometimes does say things that would influence your practice. And also it, inf it influences probably more so what you wouldn't do. And it gives you constraints rather than prescriptions. So there's a lot of room for, for your own kind of filter to apply these, these, these principles or these, these um, basically kind of these models of what we think, you know, drives training adaptation. And there's a lot of ways to apply that in a training program, but it also creates constraints on, on how much effect you think you have, what the differences may, may or may not be. Like for example, in periodization, like we don't really know whether random periodization is better than, than highly structured periodization, right? We, and we, and with a lot of people, no periodization might be exactly the same as a highly structured periodization program. But we just assume like more effort goes in, like more is better, periodization is good, you know, daily undulating periodization is the best, you know, and that might be true. And it might, you know, it might just be easier to think that way, but to, but to convince yourself that there's something inherently special about the way you structure training is, is a mistake, right? And it, and, it's a, and it leads to false certainty and it leads to, you know, a, and, it is, and it might inform decisions in the future that don't serve you well. So if that makes sense, like I think of research as providing a, a bandwidth of options that you can then choose from because evidence-based practice in medicine, which we don't really get as personal trainers, is, is the research evidence, you know, clinician or practitioner experience and patient preferences. And the idea is those all inform decisions that go into, well, how you deliver a training program or in medicine, how you deliver therapy or treatment. So they all influence, you know, the ultimate decision-making, but they influence it to different degrees. And the idea is you can't just take one without the other and expect to, to use, to be doing evidence-based you know, practice. So the idea is if people are just using evidence and like slapping the, whatever, the experimental design from an auto-regulation training study onto a, a client and saying, this is evidence-based, it worked very slightly better than, than a percentage-based program, which is, pro almost, which is barely statistically significant, you know, and we're barely detectable in, in real world terms. It's like, well, this is a, this equals a better program, so I'm giving it to you. That's also not evidence-based practice, you know, because it, it doesn't have the other two components. Yeah, totally. So <laughs> I guess when looking at those, mm -hmm. do you have a hierarchy of how you structure them when pulling options? So we know that maybe like these couple of options would be mm -hmm. best based on the research. Mm -hmm. I've seen this in training and what trends best with my mm -hmm. clients. Yeah. So when combining like the best case for the person you're working with, yeah. how do you structure that hierarchy of choosing whether it be the modality, the way you're going to mm -hmm. have them adapt or so yeah. forth like to their practice? Yeah, so the tough part is when you apply it to real people, people are not averages, they're not a sample of college students in an exercise physiology program that are getting paid to do a study. So they're real people with, with a current level of ability that's, you know, and they have a real training background and they have real skills and, and holes and they have goals that are often unique to them and they have constraints in their life that are unique to them. They have beliefs and, you know, attitudes and preferences that are unique to them. In a group training program, those are less relevant, but they're still kind of relevant. You And also there's other influences that cha you know, change the way you write a program. It's whether it's informational constraints or equipment constraints or, or time constraints or some sort of assessment of the population you're working with. But in a one-on-one -on -one scenario, it's, it, it's all about the person in front of you and, and the program that they will do and respond to and the program they'll get the most out of. 
right? W- keeping in mind that, that some decisions might be influenced by what the literature says. So again, tempo is a good example. It's like, well, I could still use a slow tempo to help people learn a movement or, or to actually reduce load in, in the beginning of a training cycle or in, or in you know, the off season so they don't kind of right, overload the system or don't progress too fast. Or I want to you know, create a longer period of time to load a tendon or, or something or, or limit rate of tendon loading because that could be irritating. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons to, to give a tempo that it creates more hypertrophy is not a reason. So if the goal is hypertrophy, a tempo prescription doesn't make sense unless, it, unless it's to remind them to control the movement and create more ca- mechanical tension. Gotcha. Right? So it's a good example. So like a 10 second yeah. lowering tempo makes no sense. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. So it's basically what you're saying is you structure it based yeah. on the individual in front of you. And yeah. there's a lot of individuality that goes in yeah. there. Yeah. That's really cool. I like that approach a lot, man. Yeah. I think that's great information. I think for, especially for newer coaches and yeah, like trainers getting into the game. Yeah, and I think that's one thing I think is emerging in clinical practice that really applies to training is that we're so uncertain about our the objective tests we have, how unreliable they are and how often unus- you know not useful they are. Like even the most sensitive testing like advanced imaging is just not useful for in in the vast majority of cases with people with pain. So what can we fall back on is people's own experiences, conversations, questions and helping them develop a plan, you know, towards their towards their goals or towards their recovery in the clinical case. So the same thing applies to training because essentially clinicians are realizing, hey, we're just coaches. We're just coaching people in pain. So coaches need to realize that we're coaches and we're coaching people. And that's what patient-centered coaching is. So that just means you have to be the person who asks the questions, who understands where the where the the person in front of you is coming from, what their beliefs are, and if you're unsure of those, to create that open you know dialogue and to not come at it with your own you know set of expectations, beliefs, and biases. Cool, man. I love that. Um, so something I want to talk to you about, and something I think you have a lot of knowledge on, mm. is something you kind of just briefly said, but mm. pain. Yeah. There's a lot of cool research out coming out right now and a lot mm. of cool rhetorics coming out on how we perceive pain, yeah. especially in the gym setting. Mm. Um, I would love to just hear your kind of take on like a top level down of how pain was perceived and how it's kind of shifted in the terms of like more of a clinical st- setting mm. of how we're now kind of seeing and understanding it and going forth from there. Like basically how has change, how has pain changed over the last five decades, let's say? Ooh, that's a good one. So there's a really good paper that came out by uh, this. It's probably the paper of the of the year. It's really a f- philosophy paper, so it's not even like an experiment. So um, this kid was a chiropractor, was a PhD student, uh, but they outline the history. I mean, if anyone wants to look at it, it's, it's an inactive approach to pain beyond the biopsycho beyond the biopsychosocial model, beyond the BPS model. Um, they outline the history of pain science essentially, and they start with you know you know, uh, like voodoo cults and inhabited spirits. And then it goes to Descartes, right? I doubt therefore I am kind of duality of mind and body. And this mind body dualism kind of led to the belief that pain was transmitted via wires to the brain that released animal spirits. And that was kind of the dominant belief until, you know, until the fifties and sixties when we understood more about, you know, uh, neuroscience and we thought pain must be somewhere in the brain. And then there was also a, a different school of thought that was like, well, body pain or somatic pain must be transmitted in the nerves to the brain and the brain just outputted pain. So you had two kind of competing ideas. And then as the end of the 20th century evolved, they were looking for a brain-centered region because some of the gate control stuff, so some of the, well, if pain comes from the body and when we move, we kind of reduce it a little bit, that means that we're, we're blocking the pain signal. Well, some of that data was kind of, that, that model was kind of broken a little bit because you can still perceive pain for a lot of other reasons. And there was just clearly not a clear relationship between the input coming from the nerves and the pain experience that was kind of coming out. So people were looking for the place that that was processed to drug it or to, to surgically alter it like a pain center. The idea is no one ever really found a pain center. Uh, and there's some conditions where people don't process pain the same way, but they have pain and avoidance behavior. So they don't feel pain, but they behave as if they felt pain, which is very interesting. But so the problem is much of the the 20th century medicine is based on 
finding, diagnosing, and fixing pathology. And there was an assumption that, that you know, noxious sensory input from the body caused pain. So if people had pain, we must find the cause of the, of the sensory input or reduce the, the, nox, you know, the noxious stimulus so that we can then reduce you know, pain or eliminate pain. And we knew that was a flawed model because there are just, there's just so many circumstances where you know, that the, noxious, the amount of noxious stimuli doesn't predict pain, it doesn't predict the amount of pain, reducing it doesn't reduce pain, right? right? Other therapies might reduce pain without influencing the noxious stimuli. Doing nothing reduces pain without changing the status. So there's a whole, there's just the entire model is broken. So in came George Engel and this thing called the biopsychosocial model, which means that he basically said within a medical context, it's like, hey, the, there is a person here. The status of the tissue or the biology is important, but it's not the only thing that influences this person's experience of their treatment. Their psychological state, right? Their their thoughts, attitudes, beliefs, and emotions influence this, their condition and their perception of the condition and their prognosis and their beliefs about treatment and their, and their social behavior, which people don't really get, which is really kind of, again, those conditioned behaviors, those socially learned responses, those kind of, those expectations set by their tribe also influence their behaviors around their condition or illness or, or health status and also their expectations of treatment. So people, people learn about pain very early. Like, so a good example is if your dad had a bad back and he didn't ever get out of, you know, out of pain and he never, you know, lifted anything heavy and he always got in the car very slowly and right. He always went to the doctor all the time. He's like, well, Oh, my dad has a bad back. That's what you do when you have a bad back. So that's a good example of that. And it's like, oh, if, I, if my back hurts, I must have a bad back too because it's genetic, and I and I should also protect my back as much as he did because I can only. And you know, he had one spine surgery, and like he could have had seven. So I want to only have one spine surgery. So I think people underestimate that socially learned component. But even that model is limited. One because people end up talking about one of the three things is like, oh, this this is a bio. Like the, you know, there's something wrong with that person's you know disc or their facet joint or if we're talking about backs or like their elbow so they're just they're just a bio we need to deal with the elbow so you're still dealing with the tissue and not uh, not the pain or not the, the entire experience you're not the pain in context is like what what are they doing you know what is the history you know what is their total level of 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 stress or adaptation you know it's like what are their concerns about the history of this condition is like are they afraid it's going to get worse what are their expectations of relief are they totally unrealistic about you know the expectations of relief like what do they think the pain means to them do they think that they're hurting themselves every time they experience some pain so all these things influence even a very simple you know movement triggered or or kind of tissue centered pain experience and, and like patella like, so like knee pain is a good example too like front of knee pain it was like yeah it's almost easily you know triggered by almost always very easily triggered by some sort of movement so it's like oh you know it's very clear that there's a biological component to that but again, that's not all, it's never the only component because, yeah. because pain by definition is not only a biological experience. Nociception is, which is just bad, which is the, the nerve stuff. But when we experience pain as a threat assessment, as a, a behavior that, that, you know, that influences other behaviors, right? As, an, as this kind of emergent sense-making tool, it, it is more than, than just the bad sensation. It is kind of a belief and behavior pattern and it's a useful tool in terms of right navigating potentially threatening situations so there is a utility to it so the, the idea is when we extend that that kind of bps model or that biopsychosocial model into someone's environment and understand their pain and context and their we better get us we get a better sense of of how we can help them move back towards the things that they love doing, right? Get back to, to living in a way that, that's helpful for them, regardless of the amount of pain they experience. And that might require reducing pain a good amount, but it also might require changing the predictive value of pain. So the idea is essentially we manifest pain often irrespective of the amount of damage, which might be because we anticipate damage 
which is helpful again to avoid death. But but sometimes that threat assessment becomes too too sensitive and writes an alarm that won't shut off. And the idea is how do we help them shut off that alarm? And that comes through desensitization and conditioning and right and general movement and showing people that they can move and that they are strong and maybe even touching pain and getting people moving through a little bit of pain. But again, that's kind of in a in a therapy environment with kind of the the go ahead from from people who have kind of ruled out anything potentially serious. But you know, for people with kind of more serious and you know ongoing pain. But it's like for people with a little bit of sensitivity, it's like maybe working through it a little bit and seeing it reduce kind of proves to you that it's not really related to any sort of underlying damage, that you are, are actually making it better with movement. And then over time, you can, you can kind of get back to, to challenging yourself and loading yourself more. And you, you can feel confident that you're kind of working through any sort of issue you had. And now you're now stronger than you were prior to that pain experience, which a lot of people don't ever get to that point. So the idea is that was all related to how this pain experience influences an individual's relationship to their environment. And in our context, that environment is their training environment. So you cannot remove the pain experience from any one of those components. You can't remove it. You can't remove the brain and say it's in there. You can't remove the body and say it's in there. And you also can't remove the, the movement, uh, you know, social environmental context in which people experience pain and need to address that, you know, in its entirety to help people develop kind of that plan that can, they can be confident in to move forward with the right set of expectations and, and, and kind of empowering beliefs. Oh, man, that, that was a lot. Yeah. That's a, that was impressive as hell. Um, my question for you as a coach, so yeah. I hear where you're coming from. So, looking at the bigger picture from every angle, mm -hmm. working with athletes who say like, oh, my knee is like giving me a little problem when I'm squatting, but they've mm -hmm. never had like, let's say an issue with their knee, yeah. but they're associating it with pain and whatnot. Mm -hmm. What would be your kind of first step for approaching mm -hmm. the kind of getting them out of that mindset of like, this is what's triggering it. It's actually like something that's not even related to yeah. your knee. Like how do you kind of approach yeah. that from like a first... Well, it is related to their knee. Well, like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying though? But it's you like, how do, you, how do you approach the first step of trying to get them over the hump of yeah. associating pain where there might not actually be, let's say, yeah. an underlying actual damage to the yeah. joint itself or the mechanism of which the pain is stemming from? So there's two things I like to caution people about is like, I don't want to be the person that says that, you know... Well, when someone says, oh, well, my knee hurts a little bit when I squat, and I say, your pain isn't real. It's not, yeah. you know, it's nowhere. It's like, can you it's even like rub some dirt you in know, it? Can you even quantify it? And then the other thing people say is, oh, it's not in your knee. It's actually in your shoulder because your shoulder doesn't move right. Right. And so I was like, I'm not chasing pain. I'm chasing function. And I'm like, I don't, I don't buy that either. But, but we can give people tools to, to, to reduce their, their, you know, their apprehension about what the pain might mean. Right? It's like, hey, a little bit of knee irritation is normal. What have you been doing for your training? Did you have a big spike in training volume? It's like, yeah, I've been squatting a lot more than, than, than normal. It's like, yeah, sometimes those aches and pains prop up when we do a lot more than we're used to, you know, for a lot of reasons. It's like, or, you know, has any, if nothing's changed, it's like maybe, you know, this stuff kind of emerges sometimes. So, but I want to more focus, I want to focus more on what can we do about it? Can you modify your, one, is it intolerable? If it's like a less than, especially with knee pain, if it's less than a five out of 10 and it doesn't limit your, your training, you don't feel like you, you have to reduce the weight, it doesn't flare up immediately after, it kind of resolves once you're done. It's like, you can probably continue to work through that. I wouldn't worry about it too much unless it starts to progress. And then, then you want to think about potentially getting some help. And I'm a little bit more, confident in people's ability to do that than maybe some other people are. Some people are more, um, are, are some more, are more cautious for, with people's like, Hey, you experience any pain? Like you should go see someone. I, I don't necessarily believe that. I think people can work through a lot of that stuff on their own, but if people, so if it is limiting and it kind of flares up a bunch, then that's, it's okay to modify. It's okay to use one of the, you know, any number of variables you have to reduce your training load, whether that's changing the movement variables, like knee pains, like examples, like maybe you can box squat for a little bit and you're still training, you're still even training your lower body. 
you know, and you can do other movements that very heavily load the musculature you're trying to load, like lunges. You know, sometimes compressive loads of the of the knee just irritate the patella a little more, especially when it's sensitive. And just the idea that that's temporary and will go away, and you should continue training is really important to reinforce. So there's ways to base to do some basic training modifications, so you don't you're not too far removed from the training environment. That's probably the most helpful, and that involves some sort of movement modification, a lot of times, but not because people were moving wrong, or, or it might be because I think people are moving inefficiently, but I don't like to tell them, oh, you're moving wrong, because then people might associate, you know, that type of movement with pain, and might fear what moving in a certain way means, and might, right, and might n <coughs> n now have reduced confidence in their body to handle training, which is not the goal. So instead saying, you can probably tolerate a whole host of movements that people feel like are unsafe as long as you're prepared to do them, which might be harder than some other things, but if you really wanted to. I mean, I like to say that you know the body is, is almost infinitely adaptable, but not totally infinitely adaptable. It's like, yeah, you can't, there's probably some positions that will just break you. It's like you throw enough 100 mile an hour fastballs you know, in a row, eventually you're gonna tear something in your shoulders because those structures don't adapt that fast. But like in theory, if you spread out your throwing volume enough and you, yeah, and you were kind of careful enough with your progression, you would be able to create enough strength in your, your ligaments and tendons to handle an enormous amount of, of you know, the humoral rotation that comes with throwing a baseball 100 miles an hour, which is probably the most violent thing you can do with your shoulder. True. Yeah. So, I have a couple more questions before yeah. we wrap this chat up yeah. because this has been this has been a lot to take in, and yeah. I worry that we're we might lose some people. But um, <laughs> my next question for you, and I know this might be another big question, but how much different is it working through pain with somebody who has a previous injury? So, mm -hmm. I'll just give you like an anecdotal like yeah. anecdotal example. I ruptured my quad back in 2017, mm -hmm. and now I am seeing more and more like how I associate pain that I've had from that yeah. with my training when there's probably nothing actually going on for the most part yeah. and I'm very tuned in with my volume and intensity based mm -hmm. on what I'm able to handle now that I kind of know a better idea of that so when working with clients and athletes who have had previous injuries and have pain in that area through mm -hmm. training how do you kind of navigate whether that is actually related to the injury itself and it may be something that hasn't healed or been rehabbed to its fullest extent versus yeah. something that they learned from that injury. Like, man, I'm not going to lie. I did it while I was squatting. And when I get to a certain weight, there's always that thought in my head. I'm like, well, fuck. Like, this yeah. is what did me in last time. Like, yeah. how do I... How do you navigate that, man? I feel like that's a very tough question and it comes down to a lot of the rhetoric you have with your client. Yeah. I think I, that circles back to having that conversation and doing patient-centered yeah. coaching. But for you... It was a quad tendon rupture. Yeah, like I couldn't lift my leg. I like uh, was it a full rupture? Yeah, yeah. it rolled up my. Dude, uh, it was bad. I went. I went to the awful. doc. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh, doc, I feel no pain. Like this must <laughs> not be that bad, right?" And they go flex your quad, and yeah. I went like this and extended and flexed, yeah. and the whole quad muscle yeah. rolled up like two inches, yeah. and I just about passed out. I was Oof. like, huh. "Yeah," and they probably got you into surgery pretty quick. Oh, I was. That. I was in surgery like two days later. Yeah, it was yeah. wild. Yeah, they're they like, yeah, within we, two weeks. Or yeah, they're like, we can't have this roll up your leg. Otherwise, like, you're screwed. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a good example of, under, of understanding the fear is real and it's useful, right? If you almost killed yourself tearing your quad, you're going to protect your quad way past kind of the minimum safe time it is you need to protect it, right? Um, a, good, a, a good kind of way to think about that is, you know, the body heals, the brain remembers, right? The, the trauma is something you have to work through almost like a psychologist, is like you have to expose yourself to the same environment, the same cues, right? The, pain, the, the injury happened in an environment. You almost need to slowly re-expose yourself to those triggers and also provide some sort of safety and support, which is the goal of someone like me or you know, a therapist or a, or a coach or a clinician is to, is to make it feel safe so you can learn to navigate those potentially triggering you know, environments, right? To not relive the same sort of emotions and experiences that you had even though you're not going to have that same injury again and also to work at a pace that people are, are comfortable with that challenges them a little bit right so that's all involved in a, in a quality rehab process if the rehab wasn't so good then you just need to start where people are and understand this like hey if it's going to take a little longer you kind of had you know that's especially with a serious injury it's like you had a serious injury 
And we know that the more preparation you do and the more patient you are and the better strength we can develop in these certain movements or positions and the better, whether it's limb symmetry or, or, or jump metrics or whatever kind of objective measures we have, again, based on the evidence, like the best tools we have, then, then the better off we're going to be for you to go back to doing the things at, at the kind of at the level you want to do them. Right, we got We want to set you up. We're not going to make any guarantees, but we're going to set you up for success by 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 doing all the right things and taking, you know, the right amount of time. Gotcha. Yeah, I feel like that only adds to the level of complexity yeah. of understanding it. But that's really cool. That I think, I think one of the big takeaways, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is having a little bit more mindfulness as coach and trainers over the mm-hmm. rhetoric rhetoric we're using with yeah. some of the athletes and clients we have. Right. It's like maybe not babying them to like a certain extent, but also being very understanding an individual with mm-hmm. their needs and yeah. everything else. Yeah, I think, you know, we kind of got into the weeds a little bit, which is going to like any into the weeds. But I think circling back to the fact that words really matter. Yeah. And clinicians don't consider how much their words matter. I don't think trainers have ever considered how much their words matter, right? You know, you don't need to tell people what's wrong with them. You should start telling people what's right with them. And, and focus on that and focus on delivering an empowering message, providing accountability where needed, but not, not projecting authority by creating a false sense of your own knowledge, right? Whenever, when you're going to explain something to someone or tell someone something about themselves, you should ask, how do I know that? How confident am I actually in, in what I'm saying? What are the potential consequences of me saying it? Right, because words, right, if, if we understand pain as a, as a kind of a a global experience or a kind of a behavior that has emotions and and prior beliefs wrapped up into it your words affect that experience well dude thank you so much for the chat man that was a lot to take in and we'll definitely have to have a part two at some point in 2020 and follow up on some of these topics Mm -hmm. if you're listening and if you enjoyed this podcast share a comment down below if there's anything that we should follow up on in the next rendition of having Ian Kaplan on. But Ian, mm-hmm. man, tell the folks where to follow you, where to find you, where to ask more questions if they have some based on the podcast. Yeah, you can follow me at kaplanfitness.hybrid. That's K-A-P-L-A-N, which should be spelled in the in the notes. Fitness.hybrid. Uh, yeah, reach out if you have any questions. Um, I'm happy to respond to any anything you might have with you know a good thorough answer. Well, thank you so much, man. And Obviously, listeners, we'll have everything linked down below, too, if any of that is unclear. But thanks for the time, man, and I'm looking forward to having you back on. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. It was fun.